You are listening to the Ortho Idea Podcast, where we bring you the newest trends in orthopedic technology. Tune in for engaging interviews with medical device executives, surgeons, and surprise special guests discussing new disruptive technology in the marketplace. Here is your host, Eric Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Ortho Idea Podcast. My name is Eric Anderson. I will be your host today. And today we have a very interesting guest who's joining the Ortho Idea podcast, Dr. Daniel Paul. He is an orthopedic surgeon in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he's also the founder and CEO of Easy Orthopedics. And if you have been on LinkedIn and any time in the past month or two, you see he posts quite a bit of content on LinkedIn that's very interesting, and he has a very new innovative approach to orthopedics. So without further ado, Dr. Paul, how are you today? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast. And obviously, we've been seeing your LinkedIn content, and you're definitely a disruptor right now in the medical world, orthopedic world. And so we've had a lot of surgeons that I've talked to said, hey, I would love to hear what he's doing and kind of get a background on how he got to this point. So, you know, if you could kind of go into just kind of your a little bit of of your background and then also, you know, how you kind of decided to get to this point. Gotcha. So yeah, I'll give you a little bit of the origin story. And I want to start by saying nobody starts a new business because everything is good. You start a new business because things aren't good. There's problems, you're unhappy, there's some disruption to your life or something's not going right, right? No one says everything is wonderful right now. I'm going to go leave my job and start a business. That's just not how it works. So I'll start with that. So I never thought I would be doing this sort of practice and residency. I thought I was just going to, you know, finish fellowship and get a job kind of like everybody else did and like, you know, live happily ever after, which if you're an attending in orthopedic surgery, you know, is not how it works. But anyways, so my story is I finished residency. That goes fine. And then I start a hand surgery fellowship. Okay. And I say I started it because I didn't finish it. So I quit halfway through. Okay. And nobody likes to start a year long fellowship planning to quit halfway through. But when I was at that halfway mark, there was a couple things that happened. One was I couldn't find a job where I wanted to live. Now, my wife is from Colorado Springs. It's a competitive market for orthopedics. And I'd been dragging her all over the country at this point to all, you know, Florida, Ohio, all over the place, like, you know, med school, ortho residency, now fellowship. And I said, we're going to go back to Colorado one way or another. And I couldn't find a job anywhere on the front range. And it's not like I needed to live in Colorado Springs. I would have lived for anywhere, right? And like, there's just nothing. Or the ones I did find, the best way to describe these jobs are is abusive in a certain sense. Here, take our level three call for our entire practice 24-7. Oh, here's a four-month guarantee, right? You know, and we don't have any existing patients. So that was out there. And I actually interviewed for a job out in Connecticut where I'm from. And it's just this senior partner, and he is so bitter. This guy is just so mad. He's just telling me how much money he used to make in the early 90s and just how miserable he is. And I talked to one of the junior attendings, and I'm like, are you happy here? And he's like, it's getting better. I'm like, you're going to live your whole life getting better? You can't Uh live like that. So like that goes on, and that kind of creates this existential crisis that I have. And then another thing happened is I had a family crisis at the same time. So I had these two crises of sorts. And they just kind of balled together into like this untenable situation where I just couldn't stay doing what I was doing. So I quit my fellowship. I broke my lease and I just moved out to Colorado into my in-laws basement. Okay. 
So I'm in the basement, you know, rubbing sticks together, trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, my friends are getting out into practice, making like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm just sitting in the basement. And it's like, well, what am I going to do? It's not like I can just kind of go out and get a job. Not that I wanted to do that anyways. And I had a friend who started a house call practice doing internal medicine down in South Florida, where I went to medical school. I went to University of Miami. And I'm like, man, this guy's not only happier than anybody I know, he's also doing better financially. And, you know, we all made fun of him at first when he did that. But he like he was just doing extremely well. And I said, there's something here. This has to work for orthopedics. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm going to try and figure it out. So that was kind of the reason how I started it. And then what kind of practice is it? So I don't take any insurances. I take no insurances. I've also opted out of Medicare. And the reason why I do that is because it's kind of antithetical to, I think, quality Medicare and medical care in a certain sense. Now, you can have an extremely talented doctor, but if you're seeing 40, 50 people a day, you're only getting like 15-minute booked appointments, maybe five, six minutes of FaceTime with a patient. Now, if the patient has one problem that they understand, like, let's say carpal tunnel syndrome or something like that, fine. But when people have like multiple problems or things going on, it's hard to provide quality care in that setting, as I believe that you can't compress these medical visits down to a short period of time without losing quality. So essentially what I'm getting at is the type of medicine is relationship-based practice, as opposed to this very transactional-based practice that we have now. And doctors do not like it. They do not like seeing that many people. Patients don't like it. We could go on about that all day. But the crux of it is I basically cut my patient volume down by a ton and only seeing, you know, booking patients for an hour. But then I also cut my overhead down. So since I don't take insurance, I don't need all the stuff that goes along with it. My EMR costs me like $35 a month. I just use a HIPAA compliant Google Drive through Google Workspace. I'm mobile, so I don't even pay for office space. I just travel around to people's houses. I started off 100% house calls, and that kind of morphed into going to other people's offices as I'm added value when I'm there. And my staff is just me and my wife. So my total overhead for a year is probably like $2,000 a month. So you know, you're looking at half the cost of an MA just to run my business. And then when I get paid in cash, I mean, I don't have to waste tons of effort fighting with insurance to get paid pennies. And it's not really even about the money. It's about the autonomy. It's about me being able to practice how I want to practice without insurance companies telling me what to do and without hospital administration telling me what to do. If I want to order an MRI and we're in the world of cash, $500, they can get it same day, next day. You know, I don't know yeah. one, no one has to approve that. So I think that's kind of the model in a nutshell. And I've had to work out kicks like how do I do surgery? Where do I do surgery? How often am I doing surgery? You know, there's a lot of other things I've had to figure out along the way to make it function, but that's it. In a nutshell, I mean, you can see behind me, I have a bag. That's everything I carry around with me to do any sort of suturing injections. I have a little ultrasound in there so I can like, you know, image the cuff or like, let's say the SL ligament of the wrist or ultrasound guide and injections. I have a cast and splinting card I can carry around. Mostly everything you do in an office. So the question that your orthodox probably have is, well, how do you get imaging? Well, one of those offices I travel to is an imaging center. So if somebody needs x-rays or CT, I'll get it there. But otherwise... I mean, if somebody has trauma, yes, you need an x-ray right away. But if it's something chronic, you can always kind of order the x-ray, kind of like you'd order a CT scan or MRI. And then we'll say you see them, you send them for x-ray and call them when the x-ray gets back. So that problem has essentially been solved. Gotcha. I know one of the questions that I had for you and a lot of the surgeons I talked to is, and you kind of answered a little bit, but 
how do patients know about you? Gotcha. So I get my patients through two ways. One is through the internet. So if you Google search steroid injection Colorado Springs, I believe in the top result. So people will call and inquire about that. And, you know, when you have a transparent cash price, they love that. I mean, you know, we, we tend to think like, you know, doctors say, well, what do you do if someone comes to you and they don't have insurance? My question to them is, do you take every single insurance? What do you do when someone comes to you and you don't take their insurance? You tell them you don't take their insurance. But in a lot of cases, there's people who don't have insurance, who are small business owners, or their deductible is too high. And I'm the most economical way for them to get seen and uh, get diagnosis, treatment, or a steroid injection. So there is a large class of people that are very underserved that you kind of fit nicely with, essentially cash pay and those with high deductibles. And, you know, they're scared about the bills they're going to get. So if they know exactly what it's going to be, that is a lot of peace of mind for them. So one of them is the internet. The other is just networking. I don't pay any money for advertising. I just find different providers in the community that think that they like what I'm doing. They're also in the world of cash. You have direct primary care doctors. You have chiropractors. People that have cash-based businesses where their patients kind of get it, those are pretty good referral sources as well. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah. And your story about the MRI, and obviously I'm a business owner, so I'm not going to go into all my insurance and things that I have to do for medical. It's extremely expensive. And I had to get go get an MRI on my shoulder. And it was... I still am shaking my head of how, you know, I got eight different prices and because of the insurance, it was just the minutia of the whole thing was nauseating. And I just wanted to get an MRI done on my shoulder. And, you know, if there was somebody like you in my town that could say, hey, I have a relationship over here with this imaging center, go there. This is what the price is going to be. I'm that kind of person where I'm like, I just want to do something that's very simple. I want to know what it is. I want to go do it. And it sounds like you've found that formula. Well, that's why I call it easy orthopedics. It's not because orthopedics yeah. is easy, which is what surgeons think. I'm just saying like all of orthopedics is easy, which is certainly not true, as you know, as well. I made the process of delivering the care easy. I removed all the middlemen from it. That's why I call it easy orthopedics. The innovation that I have is not technological, not really. It's just an innovative model of care delivery. That's where the innovation lies. Well, yeah, absolutely. And as we move on more and more where we have, you know, in our area, concierge, primary care physicians, that's what I'm moving to because I just, the whole, anyway, long story about the large hospital chain primary care givers is just, I'm watching what's happening right now. And just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you mentioned it on LinkedIn in one of your posts that it's kind of like, it's the opening the door of access to just all these different tests and everything. And again, I'm not going to say that they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but it's like they've got to keep the doors open and the lights on. And so what are they going to be doing? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. Like I said, I think the quality of care comes from forming relationships and relationship-based practice. And they've really turned it into a transactional kind of mill. And you notice the difference as a patient. You know, you notice when someone's listening to you and when someone's just trying to chart. So what these hospital systems will do is they'll buy primary care practices, not because primary care is super profitable, but now they have access to their panel of 1,000, 2,000 patients. And guess where all those referrals are going to go? They're going to go to the ortho doc, to the imaging. To, so they are in a strange way buying the patients, as terrible as that sounds. And sure. that's their game. And that's what they do. You know, you can replace a doctor with an MP, save some money. And, you know, you get all these patients now and they want patients to have loyalty to the hospital system, not the doctor. And they'll, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously do things to kind of create that. Sure. And so if a patient comes to you, you, you go to visit a patient and they have this issue and you determine they need surgery. 
are you predominantly doing those in ASCs or how are you handling surgery? Yeah. So surgery is a tough nut to crack. So I will say that I'm not doing a lot of it. I do it, but the cases are more few and far between. So it's certainly not like your standard orthopedic practice where you're like Thursday is surgical day and you've got like, you know, six, seven cases. That is just not how a cash based practice works because of that. And I'm not operating as much as I'd like to, you know, I do cadaver labs and I make sure the cases I do are more chip shot cases. So I'm not taking, doing anything crazy, right? Because I'm not, you know, in the OR as much as I'm used to. But if someone does need surgery, then yeah, it's at an ASC. I don't affiliate with any hospitals at all. I just don't really, I don't want to be affiliated with them. So, you know, we get a cash price and we negotiate one with the surgery center. And when we get something reasonable, if it works out, then we'll go ahead and do the surgery. And then it would be like any other surgery. But, you know, we'll negotiate everything up front, the implants, everything, so that the patient just pays one cost and they're not getting any excess fillings. Now, that leads to its own frustrations, right? One of them is that sometimes, like, if the price is too high, it'll kill a case. Like, I was trying to do it. I'm always fighting with the surgery center I work at to get the prices down, and he always wants to keep them up. So even though I own a lot of the equipment that I use, I don't own the center. And so, you know, sometimes I'll have a case, and, like, he comes in too high, and then the patient doesn't want to do it, and it doesn't get done, which is frustrating. You know, and also the surgical part of it is kind of a work in progress, you know, or the cases you get when the cash practice, you'll get very delayed trauma, which makes it difficult to do. So I'm saying no to more things than I'm saying yes to. For instance, I had a lady who was pregnant with a distal radius fracture, like down in Texas somewhere, wanted to get surgery. Well, it's like, well, I don't think my anesthesia is going to sedate this lady. We're not really going to be able to take x-ray in this small ASC I have. Plus, by the time I get to it, it's going to be a month out. It's going to be, you know very difficult to fix, you know, because it's delayed. So I had to say no to that. And I end up saying no to more things than I say yes to. In time, as I kind of get better facility usage, I think that part will improve. But it's certainly not like your standard ortho practice where that is like the moneymaker and the lifeblood of the practice. It's just a part of something that I do. I think you could really make a successful practice without doing any surgery. But, you know, obviously I'm a surgeon. I still like to do it when it's appropriate and needed. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, that was one of the questions I had as far as surgery and kind of looking at it, then it really your practice, it's more of a consultative patient interaction, not a multiple surgical day type practice, which is kind of, and I understand why, because obviously it's a different revenue model and that's, you know, it's kind of how other surgeons keep the lights on. Right. Yeah. But there's pluses to it. Plus thing is I set my own prices and my overhead's low, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a low overhead, low volume practice, which allows it to function and allows me to exist indefinitely. You'll say you're a joint replacement surgeon, who I like to pick on just because it's kind of, they do, you know, they do a lot of the same sort of procedures and it's easy to kind of follow that. You know, you get paid less for doing a knee replacement now than you did 20 years ago without adjusting for inflation. So I think that'll yeah. keep trending down. And at some point they may find that they can't keep the lights on doing as many joints as they can. I mean, what are you going to do? Just, I mean... So a lot of these joint surgeons, what they've done as these bundled payments have come out and squeezed them is they've become extremely efficient, efficient surgeries. We used to send patients into rehab centers. They sit there for two weeks. That was gone. I mean, now it's outpatient surgery, opioid sparing. You know, some of them don't even do physical therapy. I mean, absolute minimalist and maximum efficiency. And that's great. I think it's really good, but they don't have much place less to go. So if Medicare cuts their reimbursement by 50%, which they could do, maybe not at once, but maybe over the course of five to 10 years, what's their recourse? 
that do more, but how much can one human being do in a day? And I think they're going to get to the point as these reimbursements get cut, well, they'll essentially be forced out of their own private practice and have to become a hospital employee. That's my guess. So while my practice seems kind of strange and it's paradoxically more stable than the practices around me. I mean, as long as I can make it work, it keeps going. I mean, I talked to another surgeon in town and I don't really meet with orthopedic surgeons too much. And that's mostly because I don't really like them. You know, you're rolling the dice, right? It's 50-50. You're either getting the coolest guy you know who you'd go camping, fishing, just an amazing human being, right? Or yeah. you get the most arrogant SOB that you've ever met. It's like, I don't like to take the chance, but it's like 50-50. And I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no comment, Dr. Paul. No comment here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, one wanted to talk to me in town. And I was like, sure. And he was working at a company that got bought by a large, I don't even know what you'd call it, large group national brand and then got by by another national brand that also owns an insurance company you can guess which one that is and then <laughs> when his contract came up for renewal they offered him a 50 percent pay cut five zero five zero right this guy's wow. been working building his practice there for a while and they just dropped that on him so now he goes into private practice and he's talking to me like how do i do it what do, and like this guy's in his 50s you know what yeah. i mean i'm in my 30s so, like, I know it sounds crazy, but it is paradoxically more stable than these other practices. You know, their whole revenue is based on surgeries where they don't control how much they get paid. And as time goes on, the overhead goes up, like what you need to collect and your reimbursements go down. And at some point, it becomes an unsustainable position. It happened to primary care. And what they did is they formed direct primary care. And they've got a tried and true business model. And those it's better care. And those doctors are happy. They're really happy. But they figured it out because they hit a pain point, you know, essentially before we did. But I believe that a lot of orthopedic surgeons will hit that pain point, you know, as long as you stay in system sometime, not too far off. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I meet more and more orthopedic surgeons I talk to and they say, yeah, the, the hospital is going to buy our group. And they're super excited about it because I think the front end financial aspect is great. And then it starts to, in fact, I have a good friend who's a head of a very, very large group in the Southeast, and they just got taken over by the hospital. And he said, yeah, dude, it's fantastic what's happening. But he's a super smart guy. And I said, well, you know what's going on. He goes, well, yeah, I know. I just basically signed my life away and that I'm going to be making a lot less money in a few years. But he has other things he's doing. But it's almost like, yeah, I'm willing to take this hit right now because I know I'm going to have a lot of more pain later. And I guess that's human nature, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's a deal with the devil. Literally, yep. I mean, you get extra zeros in your bank account. It looks good. You get the burden of this practice that's slowly becoming more difficult to manage is off your shoulders. You get a lot of money. You're like, I don't have to worry about all these things. You're in the honeymoon period. It's nice. And then they start to control everything you do and you're miserable. And then your pay gets cut. So it sounds like your friend knows that. But I mean, a lot of these docs don't have a choice. I mean, they're kind of get extremely difficult to keep their practice afloat with all the constraints of the system that they have. So you can't really blame anybody for doing that. I just think that once you do that, I mean, and look, it's different. If you're in your late 50s or your sick, early 60s, I mean, you can retire, hopefully, as long as you, you know. <laughs> aren't divorced three times and didn't buy like 20 cars, right, um, right. which some of these guys, yeah, you know, when you see a surgeon working who's 75 years old, you're like, there's either two things going on. One is like you're divorced three times and you spent all your money or yep. two, the surgeon thinks that as soon as they retire, they're going to die. 
I don't know why some of them think that, but they think that like the second they have their like going away lunch that like they're going to go to sleep and never wake up again. So <laughs> it's usually one of those two. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just lost my train of thought there. But yeah, I think selling to the hospital is, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows what's involved with that. And then if you sell to some of these even larger groups, like these national groups, like it's probably even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is those larger groups are controlled by these large VC firms and, you know, they're quote unquote looking for synergies, which means we're going to cut costs and we're going to, you know, obviously increase revenue and everybody understands the financial model, but the financial model involves the surgeons making a lot less money because they got to get it from somewhere. Yeah. And they also lose your autonomy. And then you're also, it's a, you know, there's people at the end of this funnel, right? There's patients that you're treating. And I think it affects the quality of care and these powers that be, there are multiple levels removed from the actual patient care. And I don't think it's their number one priority. And I think it should. So it just becomes miserable. I mean, I've even, I do some consulting work and I did some consulting. There's an orthopod one year out of practice. He's like, I hate this. This is like terrible. You know, he gets a job out of practice and they're giving him all the junk that's floating around and like get not getting paid for a call. And he was just miserable. And I think, oh, I remember what I was going to say. If you're in your 50s or 60s, sometimes they guys can retire. But when it's people like my age and I'm in my like later 30s, you know, we don't have that option. So, you know, we have to be kind of more innovative instead of, you know, to figure something out for the rest of our careers because the situation just isn't always sustainable. And I think right. what you also see is that as a doctor, you have a existential crisis sometime in your career, usually mid to later career where you're like, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I think what we're seeing is that's happening earlier and earlier to the point where someone gets right out of training and is like, whoa, this isn't what I signed up for. I can't do this. Like, you know, you've already been grinding for a while through all your training and you're like, am I really just going to grind away the rest of my life? And I think it's kind of creating these existential crises that are happening earlier and earlier, even to the point where they're actually in training. I mean, that's kind of what happened with me. So it's an interesting thing there. Yeah, it is. And it sounds like you may have kind of unlocked an avenue for surgeons or doctors that want to kind of own their own life and their schedule and the way they see patients. And like you said, I mean, I can tell you as a patient, you see it, you understand. I know very well when I go see a concierge type, you know, primary caregiver, it's night and day. And I'm sure you, you know, obviously your patients feel that as well. And I know what's going to happen is we're going to get questions and I'm sure people will probably reach out to you, but there's obviously orthopedic surgeons around the country that are going, okay, they're scratching their head right now and they're going, all right, I can do this. I know I can do this. And what advice would you have for them? If this is something that you want to do, I think that two things will happen. One is you will immediately be happier, immediate. And you're going to feel like you're retired because you're so not busy. So you need to change your mindset of what your practice looks like and what this practice are. While it's still orthopedics and orthopedic surgery, it looks different. And when you have your own business, things come in waves. So I'll have periods where I get busy, things are good, and periods where I'm not doing too much. And that's okay. And you need to kind of get used to that. And when you build any business, it just takes a while. So just know that if you do try to do this model, there will be a period of time where you're really not busy and you're not making any money, but you're also not really losing a lot of money and you get a lot of free time. So, I mean, I have plenty of time to spend with my family. I mean, lots. I mean, my daughters see me all the time. I'm like, you're lucky, you know, like, oh, only I'm seeing a patient. It's like, all right, I'm going to go do some work. And they're like, where are you going? I'm like, I got to work, you know, but it's not like I'm gone all the time. And 
it's, you know, you could be running on the hamster wheel, seeing 40, 50 people a day and making minimal amounts, or you cut your overhead down, you know, you see a few, three to four and do much better for yourself and you're much happier. And look, those patients are much happier too. So I think it's wins all around. It's just a different way of thinking about it. And the things that you think you need, you probably don't need. Well, that pretty much sums it up. And those of us are, who are not in medicine or actually, you know, business owners, I, I can tell you that that's exactly why I did it, why I'm doing what I'm doing in several, through the, you, you know, control of your schedule and autonomy and the ability to say yes to what you want to say yes to and say no to what you want to say no to is a huge. And that almost can't be measured because it's just, it's a wonderful place to be. Yeah. You can't really put a price on that. I mean, you know, yeah. you're just autonomy and just freedom to do what you want. My other bit of advice is if you start getting into the cash world, there's a lot of like pseudoscience, medical things that people try to push you into. And I'm not talking like PRP or anything that has some data behind it, but like you need to be careful and just kind of make the decisions that you can live with because it's really easy to go down this path of just finding dollars. And I think ultimately it will not lead to a successful business and you'll be unhappy. So I do frequently say no to things that don't fit with what I want to do. Like for instance, someone's like, well, why don't you do Botox? I'm like, well, I'm not trained in Botox. I don't really do anything with the face and it's out of my wheelhouse. So no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> you yeah. know, so that's just to stay into your wheelhouse. And also if you do decide to do this model, I think you really need to do general orthopedics. You don't need to operate on anything you don't want to operate on. If you only want to operate on hands, then just only operate on hands. But you really should see it's easier to build it if you do general. So I'll see spine too. Don't operate on it but I see it and treat it. Gotcha. Well, that's great advice. And I think that it's going to resonate with quite a few people in our audience because I think as this world is changing like it is in medicine, there are going to be those surgeons out there that are going to look for different avenues and different paths to take for sure. Yeah, and I think that more people will start defecting. I think I'm a real early defector just by circumstance or luck or however you want to call it. But I think the fact that orthopods get paid pretty well right now will buffer a lot of us from doing something like this. But in time, that'll certainly get cut and you'll find yeah. more people jumping ship. Yeah, yeah. And I totally agree with you. And you are definitely a disruptor because you're, like you said, and I agree, I think you're the only one in the country right now doing it right now. And I think that's going to change. And with disruption, that's the goal. I mean, that's honestly, like, forget the money part. I mean, the system we have is terrible. It's just really bad. We've got good physicians. We've got good technology, but the business model delivery is so bad. So I want to disrupt these systems. I want employers to say, hey, we can just self-fund and get direct primary care and drop their insurance. Like I want that to happen because there's no other way to change it. I don't think you can fix the system that we have because there's too many players making too much money on it. I mean, what is it? 18% of the GDP. We're like one of the richest countries in like the history of the world. So you can imagine the amount of money that's going into healthcare. Entities make so much money off of it. They want the status quo. They want to keep things the same. So if we want to change things, we can't go through what we're doing. And I think the way to do that is to build a value network outside of those systems, outside of insurance, outside of hospital systems, where they essentially don't exist anymore. I mean, for most care, right? I'm not saying you don't need hospitals. I'm just saying for you know 99% of the time, you don't. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's going to change because you are right in there are so many middlemen. This is what's caused the bloat in the system and in all and usually in all industries, the bloat. That's a whole other podcast we could get into, into regulation and, and how that why how, where we how we got here. But you are spot on. And I thank you for coming on today and talking about 
you know, what you're doing and how you're disrupting in your local area. And as I said before, I know that you'll have people who will reach out to you. And obviously you're on LinkedIn quite a bit, quite a bit of content on LinkedIn, which is very good. So if people were to reach out to you, just would LinkedIn be the best platform? Yeah, LinkedIn is a good platform. Or you can go to my website, easyorthopedics.com, and there's a contact form there. I used to do Twitter, but then somebody called me a Nazi. And I'm Jewish, by the way. So, well, they didn't really call me a Nazi. They just said I would have ratted out Anne Franken that I have a bunch of art bands in my closet. Uh-huh. So it was at that point I pivoted over to LinkedIn, which has been a much better fit for me. <laughs> I yeah, left care Twitter, about Twitter as well. Hey, Twitter yeah, it's so toxic. became it's the, the, toilet, the toilet bowl of social media is really It is the worst fun. one for yeah. your mental health, at least. <laughs> so yeah, LinkedIn is good. My website's fine. You know, I do some consulting for other doctors who are looking to start something like I did, whether it's in orthopedics or pain management or any sort of practice. So I'll do that as well. But the more of us that do it, I think it grows the value network, the better that it'll be for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for coming on. And if, like Dr. Paul said, if you want to reach out to him either through the website or LinkedIn, I foresee you having quite a few contacts here after our, our podcast. But again, thank you so much for coming on the Ortho Idea podcast. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Ortho Idea podcast. If you would like to learn more about the technologies discussed, please visit www.orthoidea.com.